Welcome to the first of what we hope will be many Sunshine Boys podcasts. I'm Jim Williams. And joining the panel will be Ira Kaufman, the only man in the Tampa Bay area to have a Hall of Fame vote. He's a veteran sports columnist and works with us at Sports Talk Florida. Joe Henderson. He spent 35 years covering everything from the Olympics to high school sports in the Tampa Bay area. He also is a columnist for Sports Talk Florida. Gentlemen, good morning. And I'll tell you what, let's get started. Ira, you're getting ready to take that long trek from the Tampa Bay area up to beautiful Canton, Ohio. Give us a behind-the-scenes look, if you will, of what it's like to be involved in Hall of Fame voting and and kind of the whole Hall of Fame weekend from your perspective as a voter. Well, Jim, you know, I I joined in 2005 uh, and I uh, replaced the legendary Tom McEwen, uh, who was no longer traveling. And uh, I asked McEwen for some advice going into that 2005 meeting. We always meet the day before the Super Bowl. It's an all-day meeting. And there's about 46 electors. I asked McEwen for advice, and he said, keep your mouth shut, Kaufman. That was his, that was his first advice. And, uh, and I followed it. And, and, and Jim and Joe, you, you guys know me. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy for me. Not easy. No, no, I can so, confirm that. <laughs> you know, Jim, for, for five or six years, I did a lot of listening. And all of a sudden, Ed Sable came along, and, and he made the ballot. And I was a big proponent for the uh, creator of NFL Films. And uh, the board uh, picked me to make the presentation. It was my first presentation. This guy was 95 years old. Gentlemen, I figured I had one shot to get Ed Sable in. And uh, you know what? He got in. And then a few years later, along came Mr. Sapp, Mr. Brooks, uh, who was a no-brainer, and uh, Mr. Dungy, and and, and John Lynch is on the doorstep, and Rondé Barber's... uh, eligible in 2018. It's been a very, very busy time uh, for the Buck representative uh, because people are now honoring uh, that great run they had, Jim, here in Tampa after all those horrible years. Uh, it is a grueling session the day before the Super Bowl. They start this thing at 7 o'clock in a hotel room, 46 people around the table. Uh, every team is represented, and then there's maybe 14 at-large people. You know, the Peter Kings of the world, the John Claytons, uh, people like that to fill it out. And uh, each candidate, uh, is re- you know, has a presentation and, and somebody who's their representative. So I made the speeches for Sable, Sapp, Brooks, Dungy, Lynch. I'll make it for Rondé Barber. Uh, it's very tense. Uh, it's a tremendous responsibility, guys. Because I know how much it means to these players, other than their wedding day and the birth of a child. This this is the biggest day of their lives. Uh, this is the you know ultimate team sport they call football, Jim. Well, this is the ultimate individual honor. Uh, and to see uh, the turnout for people uh, that day of the induction. So I'm heading up there uh, this week. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to see a lot of old friends from the media. Uh, I'm going to see all these Hall of Famers. And, guys, I I just want you to think about this. Uh, You know, 
it's a three or four day event, and uh, you know there's there's a party and guys, imagine going to a party and you turn around and you're almost spilling a drink on Jim Brown, <laughs> and uh, you, you turn the other way and, and there's Jerry Rice uh, and Montana and John Madden's in the corner uh, and he's talking to Parcells. So you know you can tell by the enthusiasm in my voice that I'm very much uh, looking forward to this. Uh, and uh, when I get back, guys, uh, I'll tell you all about it. It's like you died and went to Canton, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping for some cooler temperatures, but Joe, you know Ohio very well uh, in early August. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure uh, it's not going to be. Yeah, I wouldn't count on it. That's right. <laughs> Joe Henderson, you, um, you and Ira share a very interesting situation, and that is that uh, you both were there uh with Tony Dungy uh while he was in Tampa and now and Ira of course you gave you know you were a big uh, proponent of his as as with Joe what's it like uh what is Tony Dungy like and and is he a guy who deserved the honor of getting into the Hall of Fame oh he absolutely deserves it and I know there's been some pushback on that but uh, give me a break I mean this guy First off, I'm, uh, the Hall of Fame represents history, and Tony Dungy is history. First African-American coach to to win a Super Bowl. So, you know, if that was all he did, that would almost be enough for me, but it's not. He had an exemplary coaching career, and he shattered barriers, and not just racial ones. Um, there's a a really good story about the night that uh, his team beat the New England Patriots in Indianapolis to clinch going to the Super Bowl for the that first time. That was a time. big comeback, Joe, a big comeback. Big comeback. They looked like they were beat, you know, and, and the rap on Dungy was he couldn't get over the hurdle, you know. That's why they, they eventually fired him in Tampa, brought in John Gruden because they got frustrated waiting uh, to win a Super Bowl. Well, anyway, they, they beat the, the Patriots. Everybody's happy. Ira and I were at that game, and we had filed our stories. It was getting late. It was a Sunday night, and uh, but we waited it out a little bit. And the two of us go down to the Colts locker room, which is deserted at this point. And uh, but we knew Dungy would still be around, so we're we're waiting. A PR guy for the Colts doesn't want to let us uh, get close to Dungy. We kind of blow him off, like yeah, right. Here's our credential. Get over it. And we see Dungy over in the corner, and he was talking to Rick Goslin. Is that right, Ira? And he spotted us, Joe. He spotted us. He spotted us. And so we, we let him finish his conversation. We wait back patiently, and finally Tony waves us over. So we go over, and we and walk we, right you know, past the congrats. PR guy, right, Joe? Right past Yeah, and he's looking at us like, who are these guys? But uh, <laughs> So we walk up to Tony, and he greets us warmly, and we're having a, a great chat with him. The one thing about all that that stood out to me was the utter joy he had at finally getting to the Super Bowl. And, you know, that would kind of belie his, his nature, uh, the, the, the image people might have of him as this steady rock that never gets too high or too low. He was pretty, pretty uh, pumped up that night. The one thing he said that I will never forget was that he – considered getting to the Super Bowl validation 
for his coaching style, which was he specifically said, you know, I don't cuss, I don't yell, I'm not a screamer. And that was always one of the raps on him, that he was just too low-key to be the Vince Lombardi kind of leader that could get you uh, where you wanted to go. He proved uh, everybody wrong. And, of course, they went on and won that Super Bowl, and that, I think, clinched his place in Canton. And, Jim, another thing that he did, and Joe's right, shattering different stereotypes, uh, he sent his assistants home at 7 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Dick, the Dick Vermeils of the world, Jim, were getting burned out left and right, you know, sleeping on couches, uh, you know, in bunkers. Uh, he said, you know, if you can't get your, you know, your work in in 10 hours, you're in the wrong business. And, uh, Jim, there, there's pushback from Buck fans, some of them. Uh, I think the frustration was that he couldn't bring the Super Bowl to Tampa, and, and lo and behold, here comes Gruden, first year, boom, world champions. But Joe knows, even though Dungy won his Super Bowl with the Colts, his best work came in Tampa, Jim. Oh, there's yeah. no question about that. The, the Buccaneers were, to be charitable, a wasteland back then. <laughs> and they, I mean, they, you couldn't stand to watch them. They were terrible. And, 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 what, and how many straight losing seasons did they have, Iris? Like after Dungy's first year, which you give him a pass, that made 14 yeah. straight losing seasons. Jim, this league's been around for almost 100 years. No team has ever done that. 14 straight losing seasons. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll layer on with this. We were, Ira and I were both there to, to chronicle all of this. Mm-hmm. And when those guys caught fire and, and you could see that young defense with Sapp and Brooks and Lynch and all the rest coming together, I've never seen this t- you know, the, the city of Tampa and the Tampa Bay area so jacked up. Have you, Ira? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, the lightning has captured people's imaginations. But, Jim, you know the state of Florida. You know football's number one, always going to be number one. And, you know, even though the lightning have done some great things under this, this uh, ownership of Jeff Vinnick, uh, football's king. And, and, and Joe knows that. And uh, this, this was football nirvana. Uh, for a good long stretch, and uh, and they're trying to recapture that now, Jim. Well, the other part from the T- Dungy situation that you both can talk to as we speak here on the Sunshine Boys podcast with Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson. Uh, Ira and Joe, one of the things that, that has always struck me about Tony is that uh, sometimes he doesn't get enough credit for the coaching tree that he's created. I mean, if you look at uh, the NFL and, and now in college, because Lovey's, you know, at Illinois, uh, that's a pretty impressive group of people that Tony has ushered into the, uh, the national football league as, uh, as head coaches. And as I said, in some cases, colleges. That's another great aspect of uh, Dungey's resume, Jim, you're right on, on that point. Uh, when I made my Dungy presentation, and I made three of them before he got voted in, he kept creeping towards it and finally got over the top last year, but I made three presentations. Jim, in each one, you know, you don't want to hit these people over the head with him being the social conscience of the NFL and his coaching tree. You got to establish him as a historically winning coach, which mm-hmm. he was. So I did that. But once he had that platform, 
he used it where not everybody would have. And then I brought the coaching tree in. And, you know, you've got Mike Tomlin, Steelers. Uh, and, and, you know, the Steelers don't make mistakes when it comes to hiring head coaches. And, nope. they plucked, and they plucked Mike Tomlin, who was brought into this league by Tony Dungy. And he ends up winning the Super Bowl with the Steelers. And, and he's got a heck of a record, Tomlin. I think he's, a, he's one of the best coaches in this league. And, you know, when I talked to Tomlin in, in anticipation of, of Dungy's uh, presentation, Joe, this, this was uh, Tomlin's first line to me. W- what about Tony Dungy is not historic? Uh, he talked about how Dungy was a blueprint for him. You've got the Lovey Smiths of the world, the Herm Edwards, the Rod Marinelli's. Uh, quite a coaching tree, Jim. And they all learned certain principles from Tony. Uh, humility, I think, number one. Community involvement for your players, uh, very high on the list. And uh, the Dungy legacy carries on, gentlemen. Uh, and here we are in, in 2016. What about yeah, this class coming? I'm sorry, Joe, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to point out, Let's and let's give full credit on that tree to where it's due, because Tony Dungy came under the Marty Schottenheimer coaching tree. And... Mm-hmm. And That's Chuck not, Noll, that wasn't a bad battle. Yes. And well, Ch- uh, Schottenheimer too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so Dungey, Dungey anyway, can't, uh, Jim Dungey can't go five minutes without talking about Chuck Knoll. So mm-hmm. you know that that was his guy, Chuck Knoll. Uh, he well, he is a, lot a defensive from. guy. Yes. Well, and and the Steelers, you know, talk about the Buccaneers, the Steelers, in the years prior to when Chuck Knoll showed up were basically, you know, a, a bit of a joke in the national football league. That's and, right. uh, you know, without Chuck Knoll coming in and, 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 uh, it, it, there also was a bit of a, an interesting nexus at that time, because as you guys know, uh, there was a cash infusion brought on by the NFL AFL merger where Art Modell in Cleveland uh, Dan Rooney, who was running the show for his father, Art Rooney, in Pittsburgh. And at that point, Carol Rosenblum, who was um, uh, the owner of the, of the Baltimore Colts, all received cash if they would move from the NFL to the AFL uh, as part of the, the merger. And that cash infusion was used by Dan Rooney to, uh, to help Chuck Knoll get the players that Chuck needed to become a, uh, a right. competitive organization. And that yep. was kind of the, that, that whole kind of, everything fell into place for the, for the uh, Rooney family when that whole um, situation of the merger and the cash infusion uh, all hit at the same time. Uh, Jim, am I wrong? But Modell made, was the first guy to make the move. Uh, don't I have to give Modell the credit on that saying we'll, we'll, we'll go to the, uh, well, we'll, we'll, it was, switch, we'll switch uh, conferences. Yeah, it, what it was is Modell, Modell and the Roonies were incredibly well um, connected from standpoint of they were they were best you know best friends. There were a lot of the Roonies uh, to this day. You know, Tim Rooney and uh, and Dan Rooney uh, speak lovingly of uh, uh, of Art Modell, who, as you both know. Uh, there was a, quite a rivalry for years between Cleveland and Pittsburgh uh, as 
you know, as they battled on in, in through the 60s, 70s, and on into the 80s and 90s. So they had a heck of a, a rivalry, but the, the actual Art Modell uh, relationship with regard to um, with regard to the the Rudy family was they were very tight, and as a matter of fact, so much so that whenever Art decided to move uh, the team to Baltimore, it was Tim Rooney who actually uh, had the land and the area where Art Modell ended up getting his house. So uh, because uh, the Rooney family, of course, are heavily involved in in horse racing. So um, he and had, you know, guys, uh, Joe, we're speaking of Modell. Um, very few guys have uh, Hall of Fame candidates, and he's been in the room, Joe. Uh, very mm-hmm. few have been more polarizing than Art Modell. Now, you're an Ohio guy, Joe. Of course, the knock on Modell is uh, w- when he moved the Browns. And it, it's caused a tremendous furor in the room, Joe. Yeah, it really um, was one of the kind of earthquake events in the National Football League when he moved the Browns to Baltimore, which, by the way, almost uh, uh, affected the future of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, it didn't almost, it did, uh, because Malcolm Glacier uh, had his eye on Baltimore as well, and there is ample evidence that he would have jumped to move the Bucks to Baltimore if Modell hadn't beaten him to that city. So we kind of, down here in Tampa, we sort of owe um, Modell a debt of thanks for that. But uh, he's certainly vilified in Cleveland. Uh, People still spit on the ground when you mention his name up there. But the man was, give him his due. I mean, he was a a huge uh, part of of the history and the success of the National Football League. And... You know, when they when they moved to Baltimore and they finally won the Super Bowl, he kind of took that as, uh, you know, validation for his point. Cleveland got their team um, eventually, and I think people need to move on from the Modell situation. It happened. Jim, it's done. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, um, Jim, he, he was the point guy in the 60s for, for most of the uh, NFL negotiations for TV, which was – critical with, with the growth of the NFL into into being America's number one sport. So, yeah. you know, the Modell detractors always point to leave, leaving the city of Cleveland, but Modell's got a lot on on his resume as, as a Hall of Fame candidate, Jim. Right. No, and, and to your point, Ira, in 62, he was put there as the point guy with uh, by Pete Rozelle, who then was a commissioner to negotiate the deal with CBS to get their first uh, television contract. The ironic thing is, and a lot of people don't know this, is that the AFL actually had a national television contract two years prior to the uh, That's crazy. That's to, the, crazy. Uh, to the NFL. Theirs was uh, with NBC, right. and uh, the CBS deal happened in 62. Uh, then, of course, as you guys know, Art uh, was a very, very – uh, instrumental in the Monday night football thing. And, and there was a, a tremendous amount of pushback on that situation because coaches were going nuts about how do we schedule for Monday night? What are you thinking about? You know, Sunday is one thing, but Monday's another and nobody's going to watch it. And it's, it's going to be a total disaster. And Rune Arledge was pitching the fact that we could put you in prime time. And this is what needs to help grow the game. And and a point of fact, as you guys know, going through history, uh, I worked on a book with um, Evan Weiner 
on the history of football. And uh, in this particular case, the interesting part of it was that Pete Rozelle and Art Modell were pretty much of the same cut of cloth. They were, they weren't football guys. They were advertising guys and they were the, you know, we all love the TV show, Mad Men. Well, Art Modell and, and Pete Rozelle were the Mad Men, if you will, of the National Football League. And they were always the ones who were out front dragging uh, guys like George Hallis. And, you know, look, look, I mean, those were, these were mom and pop operations for years. And suddenly you had the AFL, which is a bunch of businessmen. And they were, you know, they were the guys who couldn't get into the league. And now they created their own league and suddenly everybody's now together. And it, and I think had it not been for Art Modell and Pete Rozelle, because of their foresight, because of their understanding and knowledge of, of business and how businesses were run, that the National Football League that we see today probably wouldn't have existed. And you know, I, I think that is a great point, uh, Jim. And to take that even a step further, Look at the style of play that the American Football League had versus the old old guard at the NFL at that point. It was, you know, it was the Vince Lombardi uh, power sweep at that point. Right. Everything was, right. you know, very conservative, uh, kind of brutish type football. Along comes the AFL. They got Joe Namath. They got, you know, Lynn Dawson. They're throwing the ball all over the place. It was an exciting brand of football. And they really... Uh, kind of changed, I think, for the better, the way that uh, coaches and leagues began to approach uh, their product because it sure was entertaining. You're right, Joe. And, and Jim, you know, I'm an old Chiefs fan, Jim, from the mm-hmm. 60s, uh, the AFL. And uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm stretching this. You tell me. But Lamar Hunt, I mean, let's face it, guys. Without Lamar Hunt, you know, that, that league folds uh, in two years. Um, he kept them propped up financially. He had the wherewithal mm-hmm. to do it from that Hunt family money, of which there was uh, an endless supply. He had the passion. Uh, in retrospect, and he got into tennis later, remember, Jim? Uh, yep. In retrospect, Lamar Hunt is just a towering figure, I believe, in, in, in professional sports. Oh, I don't, Ira, your point is incredibly well taken because it was Lamar Hunt who guided that pretty much that whole entire merger. And frankly, I, I you know, I'm going to say this and I don't know that you know, it, it's, it's a debate that was, is long since passed, but I think that had it, had the NFL and the AFL not merged, that the AFL would have much been the much stronger league and probably it in the end of the day pulled in some of the NFL franchises because I think overall because of the entertainment play because of the stability Ira that you talked about that was brought to the fore by uh of course the Hunt family and and, and uh what they did in Kansas City and the template that uh Lamar put together no there's no question that, that he from an ownership standpoint, probably uh, was as strong an owner as ever was in professional uh, sports. 
And Joe, don't forget, Joe, ne- next, you know, working by, with Hunt uh, as your front man and, and then lurking in the background, and I do mean lurking, Joe, is Al Davis. And, and, oh, yeah. Al, da- Al Davis is like, take no prisoners. We're, we're signing, you know, the Roman Gabriels and, and the John Brodies and anybody we can get a- our hands on to a future contract, and, and we're going to we're gonna steal their lunch, Joe. I mean, that's a very formidable combination. Absolutely, yeah. and, look, and look at who his quarterback was, Daryl LaMonica, the mad bomber. Mad you know, bomber. Everybody go long. We're throwing deep, the vertical <laughs> passing game. Uh, that that goes back to football as entertainment, and I think if anything separated those two leagues, it was that the AFL realized that people were paying money uh, to get into the ballpark and expected to be entertained. You know, by Joe. The way, by the way, ahead, Jim, I – Jim, I, I know you. I know you always defend your TV people, uh, and you've had one incredible uh, career uh, in, in TV. But I've got to say, Jim, and this could be another podcast. But I don't know if Joe watched it. They made uh, a ballyhoo about you know we got the lost tapes from Super Bowl one. This was last fall, and I I couldn't Thanks. wait to watch it as an old Chiefs fan. And you know my wife and I are watching this, and I told her this is historic. They got the game footage, and next thing I knew, Jim. They got three players who weren't even born in 1966 uh, trying to comment on, on what's going on, and they, they right. talked over the action. It, it was horrible, Jim. You can't screw up a broadcast more than they screwed that broadcast up. No, that, that's a good point. And, and Joe will remember that I had the fortunate situation when I was at Channel 44 in the early days. The guys who broadcast the Buccaneers preseason games for us was Jay Randolph, out of St. Louis, we had wanted Joe Buck, but uh, I'm sorry, uh, we wanted um, Jack, Jack Buck, Buck, but Jack uh, graciously, uh, his his partner in crime was Jay, out at uh, out in St. Louis, and and uh, Jack couldn't do it, and he but he did say, I'll tell you what, if you want him, I'll get you Hank Stram, and working with Hank Stram for three years was <laughs> was both one of the most enjoyable times I've had in my life and as the person in charge of the bank account, one of the most expensive times I've had in my life. Uh, there, there is nobody who lived life better than, than Hank Stram. Uh, no one. He, was, he wasn't going to stay in a quality inn, Jim? Is that what oh, you're trying no, to say? No, no, no. Um, and we actually went to his house. I don't know if you guys had ever seen his house in New Orleans, but – we went to his house in New Orleans, and I swear to God, it looked like Tara uh, in uh, Gone with the Wind. And and I went, in, you know, I basically looked up and I said, I don't know, we might have paid for the porch. I don't know how much of the the, the house we did, but honest to God, one of the single most entertaining human beings on the planet uh, was was working with Hank Stram and uh, the stories that he could tell. And really, that brings us back, Ira, to something you brought up. And, Joe, you know this guy. When Al Davis was in the midst of trying to stockpile players for the AFL, he did a yearly swing around the historically black colleges. And there were stories that Jake Gaither used to talk about where he and Eddie Robinson would be 
talking football with Al Davis and Al Davis would be down there explaining different defenses and offenses and things like that. And they would be talking coaches and they were like a pipeline to the AFL there. Anybody who was playing for historic black colleges like Florida A&M or, or Grambling, man, they, they had no problem getting them in the AFL because they trusted the coaches and, and were very, they went into places where the NFL really never felt, you know, that they needed to do. That's a great point, Jim. And the Chiefs were very good at that, too. They had a scout, I think, named Lloyd Wells, who really uh, cleaned up uh, over there in Grambling, Buck Buchanan. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, Joe, uh, you know, as an old Chiefs fan, the Raiders were, were my rivals. My brother was a, old, my older brother. He was a Raiders fan. I'm a Chiefs fan. He's kicking my butt, you know, for most of the 60s. But I, I had the last laugh. Uh, but... Joe, you know, one thing about Al Davis I want to say, you know, for the, for the young listeners out there who don't know much about him, don't, don't judge him by those last five years, you know, where he seemed out of it. Joe, th this guy w was one of the most dominant personalities of his time. Uh, nobody knew more football than Davis. Nobody was more mercenary, ruthless. Than Davis, and I mean in a good way. If you're a Raider fan, you love him. Um, oh, and Joe, you know the loyalty between Davis and, and the old Raiders. Uh, I think is it's unmatched. Uh, when they used to come back and they used to put him on the payroll, Willie Brown, Belitnikoff. Uh, you can't say enough of, about what Al Davis meant to, to pro football. No, you you really can't. Uh, I mean, he he certainly broke uh, racial barriers uh, with the coaching. Uh, Yes. situation he John Gruden tells a great story about when he was interviewed to uh, become the eventually the Raiders head coach uh, he goes out and and you know how most of these interviews go right you, mm -hmm. you meet with the owner you know you maybe give him your vision you got a vision you give him your yeah. vision you do this you do that it, Gruden says that that Al Davis goes to the to the whiteboard there and pulls out the magic marker and, and says, hands it to, to Gruden and says, all right, now I want you to draw up uh, an under defense on the, on the board. <laughs> so Gruden goes, well, okay, and goes and puts it on the board. All right, now, how would you attack that? Show me your offensive scheme on <laughs> And makes him draw up a play right there on, uh, you know, on the board. And they do that all afternoon. That's, that's, that was his interview. Al was interested in do do you I want to I want to see that you know football clearly yeah. uh, Gruden did you know they called Al a maverick they called him this they called him that I call him a visionary and and that's another guy who uh, without him the NFL would not be the NFL today well you know Joe and I was wondering if, if uh, you would agree with this uh, luckily I, I mean I was lucky enough to be around Davis for a while, but not a long time. But two baseball guys who were, to me, very much in the same mode. And that was George Steinbrenner. And the other one was the longtime owner of a number of different teams. Um, oh, God, I'm blanking on his name. Not That's Charlie funny. Finley, no. No, I was thinking I was with the White Sox. Um, oh. Um, uh, you mean, Bill uh, Vick. Uh, 
Bill Vec, thanks. Bill Vec. Yeah, I had a yeah. senior moment uh, on this, the Sunshine Boys podcast with Ira Kaufman and Joe Henderson and uh, and myself, Jim Williams, who uh, clearly needs uh, some ginkgo galoba to get my head in straight. Uh, but yeah, those three guys had somewhat of the same kind of concept of, you know, of we're not going to do it the way it's traditionally done because that's boring. Uh, well, we're going to yeah, do it the um, way we want to do it, and you're going to deal with it. Exactly. And I, I think the particularly the comparison to uh, between uh, Al Davis and Steinbrenner is 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 apt. I mean, it's it's completely valid because they they were both cut by this sincere belief that what they were doing was right and that that they were not going to uh, settle for anything less than a championship. And there's not enough of that thinking, I think, that goes on out there. Now, now let me jump in on myself here real quick and just say that you know, a lot of a lot of owners, a lot of coaches, and whatever say, "Oh, well, we want to win a championship," but they really don't know how. Both those guys knew how to do it. They knew how to build an organization, and at that point, they were willing to put the money into it, and they were willing uh, to do whatever it took. Because, like Al used to say, "Just win, baby." And Jim, you know, I I once did a big profile of Steinbrenner for the Tribune. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've written a million stories on Steinbrenner over the years, but we we never really did a big profile. And mm-hmm. Joe probably remembers it. It was, it was probably the best probably the best story I've done for the Tribune. I took a long time, talked to a lot of people. Anyway, lo and behold, Jim Steinbrenner and Al Davis born one year apart on the Fourth of July. One year apart, both of them. Amazing. And, and the first guy that I called for the story was Al Davis, and you know Joey Johnston. Uh, yeah, I and I was, Joey in the, Johnston. I was in the office, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to get Al Davis to talk about Steinbrenner, because they knew each other. They were friends. Joey mm-hmm. said, you're, you're not getting Al Davis. You're not getting him. He don't know you. You're not getting him. And I called the secretary, and, uh, and I told her what the story was about. It's, it's George's hometown paper, Joe. I pulled out all the stops. And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple hours later, I get this call back from the secretary, be be on your phone at 3 o'clock. And 3 o'clock, I get the call from Davis. And, he, you know, he goes, where, you know, this talk, where are you born? Brooklyn. Well, I'm a Brooklyn guy. I went to Erasmus High School. Where'd you go? New Utrecht. Oh, yeah, I know New Utrecht. So we had a kinship. I told him I was a Chiefs fan. I hated you, Davis, for most of the 60s. He loved that, too. And here's his quote, Jim. He, I said, you know, I need something about George Steinbrenner. Joe, this was the qu- only Al Davis could say this. He goes, in the history of sports, ownership and management, you know, one man towers above everybody. That's me. George is number two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's a heck of a quote to start that's, that's story with, gentlemen. That's, that's Al Davis. I mean, that's you, he was, uh, he also, I mean, uh, another Tampa guy. Who Davis uh, reclam, you know, did an amazing job with was, uh, you know, John Matuzak, who was a Tampa U player. That's right, that's right. And he grabbed Ron Wolf, right, Joe? Ron Wolf was that's uh, right. in a, a Hall of Fame uh, recently yeah. inducted. Uh, he was an executive with the early Bucks, right, Joe? That's ex- that's exactly yeah, right. He was the um, he was the um, 
wasn't he the pre- vice president or president of uh, football operations, Joe? That's yeah, right. he was. He was basically in charge of putting the organization together, yeah. and unfortunately, Hugh um, Culverhouse, the somewhat tight, shall we say, owner at the, of the Bucks at the time. Frugal. That's a fair statement. <laughs> well, don't speak ill of the dead. Um, <laughs> had um, did not have the common sense, uh, the football acumen to go. You know what? This guy's pretty good. I think we better keep him around. And um, so the Bucks. Uh, yeah. Became the uh, the yucks as we called them back. Then. And Jim, let me when you, let me Jim, one, Jim, one more when you point about Al years, Davis. Uh, when you last twenty years with Al Davis, you know, uh, at his side, uh, that that's a pretty good recommendation that uh, you know what you're doing. Yeah, but absolutely. Here, here's a here's a point about Al Davis and Ira. You and I were both there in San Diego, California, when the Bucks under John Gruden absolutely dismantled uh, the Raiders. Uh, under um, essentially Al Davis at that point. And it was in the Super Bowl. Uh, the the Raiders were favored. Not a lot of people remember that, but they were favored yeah. because they had the best offense in the game, which is what Al Davis wanted. And the Bucks' defense that day just was merciless to them. Uh, what, five interceptions, Ira? Yeah. Um, you know, three, just three returned for touchdowns. Three That's returned right. for touchdowns. It was, it was a rout. And that was basically the last uh, hurrah, if you will, for Al Davis. Because the Raiders never made the playoffs again while he was alive. They were never really competitive again. Um, you know, and, and you look back on that game, you remember the Bucks winning the Super Bowl and Gruden hosting the trophy. But I remember watching, going over to the Raiders' locker room after the game for, uh, to see what was going on there, and watching Davis walk out with his wife and he just looked like he had he had lost the world that night because you know how competitive he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, maybe I, – I doubt that he had the sense to believe he wouldn't be back there again. He was probably already planning for next year. But I'll, I'm always struck with that image of him leaving the locker room after just seeing his team – thoroughly dismantled by the guy who used to coach them. Um, Absolutely. It was kind of a sad ending for him. It really was. Ira, what's going to be your um, must-see and or highlight, I guess it would be, of this weekend at the the Hall of Fame? I think it's going to be – it's going to come early. Uh, They have something called the Gold Jacket Dinner, Jim. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, the Gold Jacket is very much uh, associated with, with the Hall of Fame. Um, and there's a stage, and, and there's a big dinner, uh, thousands of people. It's a tough ticket. Uh, I'm going to be there uh, with, with my media cohorts uh, like Rick Goslin, uh, people that uh, have a lot of standing on that selection committee. Um, and we're going to be close to that stage. And they call up every member of the Hall of Fame that is attending, and sometimes it's 100 of them, and they call them up one at a time. Here comes Reggie White. Here comes Jerry Rice. Here comes Lawrence Taylor. They walk across that stage. Then they form a gauntlet on both sides. And then at the end, they bring up the class of 2016. And Tony Dungy will get his moment all by himself on that stage. And then he will walk down through the gauntlet. And in that gauntlet will be... Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, 
Brett Favre, who he used to try to plan defenses to stop in the old NFC Central. Uh, coaches, Joe Gibbs, Parcells, people that, you know, Dungey used to compete against. And that's a great moment to see the emotion on these people's faces. Uh, that gold jacket dinner, which will be televised by NFL Network, uh, I, I think is, is a real, real highlight. Uh, because the induction ceremony, as you guys know, uh, guys have waited a lifetime, and they're not going to be cheated out of their moment. So sometimes, Jim, they start rambling for 35 minutes instead of the 12 uh, that they're allotted. And uh, they just go on and on and on. But you know what? What are you going to do, Jim? Bring out a giant hook and take them off the stage. This is their moment. For me, the gold jacket ceremony is the highlight. Outstanding. Well, thanks for that insight in that regard. I do have one tiny bit of um, uh, of pushback on, on one person who I think should be in the hall who hasn't. And that you started off with saying Ed Sable, and you were the guy who got Ed Sable in there or argued the point. Steve Sable, one of my, I love Steve Sable. I, he was a mentor, uh, someone who helped me tremendously, one of my best go-to guys. And the fact that he's not in there just drives me insane. You know, Jim, I know you don't want to hear this, but. I think for most of the selectors, I can't speak for them, but I believe uh, that they look at it like Ed Sable represents the Sable family. Now, that's not fair to Steve Sable, because while Ed founded the company and will always be the original visionary, mm -hmm. uh, Steve Sable was a remarkable talent. Um, it's, it, it's unbelievable that he was taken away from us at, at such an early age, and I believe Ed's still alive, and, and he lost Steve. Uh, one quick story, Jim. The morning, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the morning of the Super Bowl, uh, on the day, uh, you know, the day after it was announced that Ed Sable was going in the hall. I believe the game was in uh, uh, Arlington, Texas, the, the house that Jerry built mm -hmm. and, uh, AT and T. Um, and I get up to the press box, and you know, the buses start rolling out of the hotel. So I get there three hours before the game. And, and the first guy I see in the press box, Jim, was Steve Sable. Mm -hmm. I had never met the man. I had never met Ed Sable, but I knew what NFL films meant. Sure. Uh, you know, we all grew up with NFL films. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know me, but the guy that he was talking to said, hey, there's Kaufman right there. He knew I made the presentation. And, Jim, he approached me, gave me one of the biggest hugs I've ever gotten in my life. Tears flowing down his face. Couldn't thank me enough for getting his 95-year-old father mm -hmm. his, his, his ultimate honor. Um, does Steve Sable belong? I think you can make a compelling case, Jim. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to happen. Well, you know, I think that um, Steve Sable and uh, Ross Greenberg uh, of, NF of um, HBO and now of his own production company are two people who are filmmakers who just happen to make films about sports and uh, they do it very, very well. And, um, you know, 
uh, I think that eventually people will understand that, uh, you know, the, the selling of the National Football League in large part, and you put your finger right on it, was Ed Sable and the NFL Films Group and, uh, and Ross Greenberg has done a magnificent job in his own right of doing of selling other parts of sports in that, in that area. But uh, it's going to be fun this week um, in, uh, in Canton. Uh, I hope you have a great time. Next time we talk guys, next time we talk, I'll, uh, I'll have plenty of stories to share from Ken. Joseph, anything you want to talk about here in the final couple of minutes of the uh, sunshine boys podcast? Uh, Just that, uh, when you're in a city where the local baseball team is 20 games under 500 and just had a fire sale of uh, some of their uh, better players and starting pitcher like the Tampa Bay Rays just did, I'm ready for some football. So uh, let's get it on. There you go. Well, it happens this uh, this Saturday, the Hall of Fame game. And uh, next time we get together, we're going to get all the information from Ira on what happened on that we can start to take a look at what's going on uh, as we get ready, not only for the kickoff of the professional football season, but obviously you can't talk football in the state of Florida and not talk about college football. So I'm sure we'll sneak in that and a number of other things. Gentlemen, for the first of hopefully many, many, many uh, Sunshine Boys Podcasts. I'm Jim Williams. I thank Ira Kaufman, longtime columnist in the Tampa Bay area and the man who has the vote in Tampa Bay for the Hall of Fame. And Joe Henderson, 35 years from covering everything from the Olympics to high school football and Dan Patrick, for that matter. Um, As part of our wonderful crew here, I'm Jim Williams, and we look forward to joining you next time on the Sunshine Boys podcast. Before we go, Ira, how can people get a hold of you socially? Uh, they can uh, go to my Twitter, uh, Jim, at uh, iKaufman76, uh, and they can read my columns on uh, Sports Talk Florida. Um, anything that's shaken in the world of sports, Jimmy, I got an opinion. I'm not shy about it, and uh, you do a great uh, job of presenting it. So uh, they can catch me on Sports Talk Florida. Joseph? They can uh, find me on Twitter uh, with the handle at J, the initial J, Henderson, Tampa. Or uh, I'm also, uh, like everybody else in the world, I am on uh, Facebook uh, with Joe Henderson, commentary, comma, columns, and such. Okay. And you can find me. At uh, News Talk Florida, my Twitter handle is NTFLA underscore politics. NTFLA underscore politics, but we can talk sports and politics too. You can do them both. So anyway, it has been a pleasure, gentlemen, and uh, we will talk again next time. We hope you enjoyed our first edition of the Sunshine Boys podcast with Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, and I am. Your host, Jim Williams. Have a great day.